skiing for the first time, snow skiing for the very first time. He bought all the equipment. He made the reservation. He went and took a few lessons. And then it came his opportunity to ascend the slope and, and enjoy his first uh, lone ski ride. He hopped on the chairlift, rode it to the top, but he had trouble getting off the chairlift. And, and as he did, another chair came behind him, hit him in the back of the head, gave him a concussion, and he had to go to the ER. Well, several weeks later, he received a notice from his insurance company informing him that they had denied his claim related to that incident. And so he contacted them and asked why they refused to pay for his medical bills in that instance. And they informed him that after learning he got hit in the back of the head by a chairlift that seemed to indicate some lack of common sense and they determined that to be a pre-existing condition. Now, I don't really believe an insurance company would deny a claim on those grounds, but that story is used here to set up this point that there are times in our lives where we need to be shown a little mercy. This morning, I'm going to take a break from our uh, study of membership, primarily because I had this lesson prepared a while ago, and I've been alone with my two kids this entire week, and so my ability to study intensely was negatively impacted. So we're going to take this little hiatus uh, from our membership study. We'll return to it next week. But I think it's important to every once in a while be reminded why we should have mercy. See, the world does not value mercy. The world does not speak the language of mercy. The, the world does not understand mercy because mercy is not a worldly trait. Mercy is a godly trait. And so quite frequently we have experiences or we go through situations during which we could really use some mercy, but, but it's not offered. But in the kingdom of God, as citizens of the kingdom of God, we're expected, we're expected in the words of Uncle Jesse, to have mercy. You know you would be upset with me if I didn't make the reference at some point today. Now, what does it mean to have mercy? Or, or really the question of the day is, what do we need to know about mercy? Mercy is one of those church words, one of those terms that you hear communicated quite frequently in spiritual settings, but we don't really have a good grasp of it. It gets thrown around with ease, but if you were to define mercy, would you just equate it to compassion or grace or pity? Where would you go with it? And, and, and what does mercy entail? How is it that we achieve this trait of mercy? Well, let's start with this, and, and I'm indebted to a fellow preacher for some of these points that I'm about to make. But the first thing we need to know is that mercy is a universal need. All of us need mercy. I want you to consider a parable for a moment, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector that's recorded in Luke chapter 18, verses, particularly verses 10 through 14. In that parable, Jesus identified two men who went to the temple to pray. One of them, the Pharisee, he is described in verses 11 and 12 as praying this, God, I thank you that I am not like this tax collector, 
I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. Now, if Quincy had come up here and prayed that prayer a moment ago, we would have been angry. That's not a proper prayer. There are no requests made of God. There's no thanksgiving or praise offered to God. There's no reference to anything outside of self in this prayer. It is the most self-absorbed prayer you could ever pray. This guy's prayer could have been summarized as this. God, I thank you that I'm better than the average Joe because of my scrupulous attention to our religion's rules. That could have been his prayer. And then you've got the other guy, the tax collector, the guy who's categorically a sinner in the eyes of the regular population. The guy that the Pharisee looked down upon. And that guy's prayer is a prayer we would have been okay with. Because his prayer, as recorded there in verse 13, is simply, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And he said that prayer as he stood far off, as he beat his chest, as he refused to even look in the direction of heaven. You see, the difference between these two guys is that one thought he deserved mercy. And the other knew that he didn't. And the one that knew he didn't deserve mercy begged for it because he knew he needed it. See, we all need mercy Because we all deserve justice. Paul made it very clear that all have sinned in Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. And that all sin has a terminal consequence in Romans chapter 6 and verse 23. But Paul also made it very clear that God has intervened on our behalf to grant us mercy. He said in Titus chapter 3 verses 4 through 5 that God saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. God saved us according to his own mercy. And then in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 4 and 5, Paul also said, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. God who is rich in mercy, abundant in mercy, overflowing in mercy, made us alive because of his mercy. Those passages are saying that through Christ, God isn't going to treat us justly. He's going to treat us mercifully. As one preacher summarized, the reason we are separated from God is because God is just. The reason we are saved is because God is merciful. So we deserve justice, but we need mercy. And the point is that everyone needs it. Everyone needs mercy because everyone's a sinner. We need mercy from God in order to survive spiritually. And sometimes the people around us need mercy from us in order to survive physically, relationally, mentally, emotionally maybe even spiritually. 
That's why Jesus instructed us in Luke chapter 6 and verse 36 to be merciful as your Father is merciful. Everyone needs mercy. You need it. I need it. And the people around us are going to need it too. And since we needed it, we're expected to give it. But you need to understand that mercy is also an intentional choice. Mercy is, is a, a universal need, but it's also an individual choice. This is evident from the parable of the unmerciful servant. Jesus told that parable in Matthew chapter 18. And between verses 22 and 30, we find out that the parable involves a servant who, uh, to use today's standards, owed his master millions of dollars. And the problem was he was a minimum wage employee. So he was never going to be able to pay off the debt he owed his master in his lifetime. Under the laws of the day, that master justifiably could have thrown him in prison for his outstanding debt and left him there for the rest of his life. So this extreme debtor approached his master and begged for mercy. And the master the master didn't just give him more time. The master went so far as to forgive his debt. The next thing you know, that servant who had been forgiven millions of dollars in debt came across a peer who owed him a couple hundred bucks. And the man who owed a couple hundred bucks begged for mercy, said that if he had more time, he could pay off his Meager debt. But the servant who had been forgiven his enormous debt had the man who owed him the small debt thrown into prison. Now, what do you think the reaction of the master was when he heard about the situation? If you look specifically at Matthew chapter 18, verse 32 and 33, we find out. There we learn that the master summoned the servant and said to him, You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? See, the point is, having mercy means that you intentionally choose to treat others the way God treated you. You're choosing to treat others the way God has already treated you. You're making an intentional choice. And this point is reiterated by James. In James chapter 2 and verse 13, James said, For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Now what is James saying? Well, I can tell you this. He's not making mercy legalistic. He's not saying that if you are merciful, then you obligate God to be merciful to you. That is not what James is saying. Instead, James is making mercy a demonstration of appreciation. He's saying that having mercy shows God that you too choose to appreciate the way that he has dealt with you and the way that he continues to deal with you. Think about it this way. What right do we have to expect mercy if we never choose to reflect mercy? 
What right do we have to expect mercy if we never choose to reflect mercy? See, when we choose to act mercifully, we are, as one preacher said, burning the very bridge that we still need to walk on. Because Jesus declared in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 7, it is the merciful who will continue to receive mercy. Mercy doesn't happen by chance. It happens by choice. It's your conscious decision to show people how God has been merciful to you by being merciful to them. And it's your conscious decision to show God your appreciation for the mercy that he has given you by paying it forward. So mercy is an intentional choice. But we also need to understand that mercy is a renewable gift. Throughout the New Testament, mercy is described not as a wage, but as a present. So you come across passages like Romans chapter 11, verses 29 through 31, where Paul speaks of mercy as a gift from God, received by the Jews and received by the Gentiles alike. Or you can go to 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 10, where the church is referred to as God's people who now have received mercy. And the Bible declares in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 16, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Did you pick up on the terminology in those passages? Mercy is something we receive, not something that we earn. Since mercy is identified in the Bible as something that is received, that means it's a gift. That means that mercy comes as a surprise to those who receive it because they're not expecting it. That's the beauty of mercy. That's what makes it so wonderful, but that's also what makes it so necessary. It's a gift. You know what else I find interesting? If we go over to Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22 and 23, we find out that this is a gift that never stops. It's renewable. Look at the way God's mercy is described here. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. What Jeremiah is declaring in this passage is that God never runs out of mercy. As one preacher pointed out, God never gets tired of giving completely undeserved gifts to his children. His mercies are new every morning. Since we don't earn God's mercy, nobody should have to earn our mercy. And since God's mercy never runs out, neither should ours. Again, when Jesus instructed us to be merciful as your Father is merciful, he was instructing us to pay forward the gift we already receive. Others may not deserve our mercy. Others will not earn our mercy. We don't give mercy because of what others have done. We give mercy because of what God has done for us. 
Mercy is a renewable gift. And mercy is a benevolent action. There's a big difference between pity and mercy. See, pity is passive. Mercy is active. What I mean is that pity, pity leads to sympathy. Mercy leads to activity. Pity is saying, I feel for you. Or, I'll be thinking about you. Mercy is deciding to take action to help remedy the situation. And nowhere will you find this more evident than in the life of Jesus. When Jesus encountered a couple of blind men in Matthew chapter 9 and Matthew chapter 20, or a woman with a demon-possessed daughter in Matthew chapter 15, or a father with a son suffering from epilepsy in Matthew chapter 17, or a colony of lepers in Luke chapter 17, when he encountered any of those individuals, they cried out, Have mercy on me! They weren't asking for Jesus to feel bad for them. They were asking for Jesus to do something about their situation. See, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, you may recall that at the end of the parable, Jesus asked this question. Which of these three, referring to the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan, these three guys who encountered the injured man on the road, which of these three proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And in verse 37, the lawyer with whom Jesus had been conversing, he gave the answer. And his answer was the one who showed him mercy. What did the Good Samaritan do that, cons- that constituted mercy? Did he see the guy on the side of the road and say, man, that breaks my heart. I hate to see someone in that condition. I know if I was in that situation, I would be miserable. You know what? I'm going to go home. I'm going to think about this all day. Is that what the Good Samaritan did? Is that what constituted his showing of mercy? Absolutely not. We know from the parable of the Good Samaritan that what constituted the show of mercy was the fact that this Samaritan got the guy off the road, bandaged up his wounds to the best of his ability, set him on his own animal, escorted him to town, placed him in an inn, and paid for his care until he could return. In other words, the Good Samaritan showed mercy because he did something, not because he felt something. And the point is that mercy is like faith. Without works, it is dead. Mercy, true mercy, results in activity, not just sympathy. True mercy is your heart saying, I am so compelled to help right now that I have to do something. Isn't that how God demonstrated mercy for us? When Jesus became flesh, When Jesus emptied himself and came to this earth and he walked this life like us but only doing it perfectly 
and then he went to the cross and died for sins he never committed, wasn't that God showing mercy? Wasn't that God doing something, not just feeling something? Mercy is a benevolent action as demonstrated by God Almighty himself. But you need to know this about mercy. Mercy is also a personal risk. Oftentimes when we look at the Beatitudes and we hear, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy, we can easily misinterpret that as, if I'm merciful to other people, they're going to be merciful back to me. But that's not really what this Beatitude is declaring. The truth is, as I mentioned at the outset, mercy is not a, a language of the world. Mercy is misunderstood by the world. The world does not know what mercy really is. And you've experienced that. This morning I experienced it. I was turning onto I-985 from Friendship. And you know, you got one of those two-lane turns. I was in the right lane because uh, I would have been the second in the left. And if you're the first in the right, then you get to be second overall. You know how it goes. You've done it. But there was this guy in his new Kia who wanted to prove how fast it could go. And so as we're doing the on-ramp, he tried to speed by me to take that second spot. And I'm like, dude, it's Sunday morning. How fast do you have to go? You've experienced it. Getting cut off in traffic. Somebody being unfair in the, 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 the line at the shopping mall or whatever. Wow, I just used really outdated language right there. Shopping mall. These kids probably don't even know what that is. You've experienced the lack of mercy in the world around us because the world doesn't understand mercy. In fact, that's why mercy is a risk. Your acts of mercy can be misused. Your acts of mercy can be abused. Your acts of mercy can be interpreted as weakness. Your acts of mercy can be used against you in some fashion. You know, Barnabas understood this. Barnabas understood that mercy was risky. In Acts chapter 9, we read about the conversion of Paul and how the former persecutor of the church became one of its members. And according to Acts chapter 9 and verse 26, Paul made his way to Jerusalem sometime after his conversion. And he attempted to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. You know what that verse is telling us? That verse is telling us that the church in Jerusalem assumed that Paul's new strategy for persecuting Christians was to go undercover as an operative. That he was secretly a spy infiltrating their ranks so that he could find all the Christians and persecute them. That's what their mindset is. Except for one guy named Barnabas who, if you look at the very next verse, in verse 27 of Acts chapter 9, we're told that Barnabas took Paul and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Barnabas showed Paul mercy when nobody else would. Barnabas took a great risk. He risked his own safety by welcoming a former persecutor. But more importantly, he risked his own reputation by operating contrary to the standard practice of everyone else in the church at that time. 
What if, what if Barnabas treated Paul the same way the other disciples did? What if Barnabas never took the risk? What if Barnabas never showed Paul mercy? See, the point is that you cannot let what people will do with your mercy, whether that be positive or negative, you cannot let what people do with your mercy determine whether or not you will be merciful. When Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy, he was providing instructions for citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. And his kingdom standards are upside down in comparison to the world's standards. Living by kingdom standards will come with inherent risk because kingdom standards are the opposite of the world's. And having mercy is not an exception. If you're going to have mercy, it's going to come with risk. But one last thing about mercy that I want to mention, and that is that it is a kingdom requirement. Mercy is a kingdom requirement. You know, I think we struggle to have mercy sometimes because we have a misunderstanding of what is most important to God. I want to take you back to the parable of the Good Samaritan for a moment. I want to read those opening lines of that parable in Luke chapter 10, verses 30 through 32. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. We're introduced to a priest and a Levite here. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus sets it up with these two figures as the one who encounter the injured man but do not assist. Now, I want you to realize Jesus did not say a scribe and a Pharisee. He did not use a scribe and Pharisee in this parable. And it's intentional because in Jesus' teaching, scribes and Pharisees were hypocrites. Scribes and Pharisees were the opponents. Scribes and Pharisees were looked down upon, criticized, called whitewashed tombs. In Jesus' teaching, rarely are Levites ever mentioned. In fact, I think there's only one other appearance of them in Jesus' life. And priests don't become opposition until late in his life, particularly around the triumphal entry. And so when he mentions the priest and Levite here, there's not an already uh, conscious uh, uh, thought process of negativity. These guys weren't looked down upon the same way that the scribes and the Pharisees were, because the scribes and the Pharisees were showmen. The chief, I mean, the priests and the Levites were temple workers. I think Jesus' choice of them is intentional. He wanted the characters in this story to be religious leaders, but he didn't want them to be automatically associated with hypocrisy. Because I don't think the point Jesus is trying to make here is that these men avoided the injured man because they were heartless. I think they avoided the injured man because they were more focused on obeying the rules than being merciful. See, both these guys work at the temple have important responsibilities at the temple. And according to the rules, 
particularly Numbers 19, chapter 19, verse 11, whoever touches the dead body of any person shall be unclean seven days. You remember in the story, in the parable, this guy was left for dead. I imagine that this priest and Levite are passing by, maybe going the opposite direction. This guy was going from Jerusalem to Jericho. Maybe they were coming from Jericho to Jerusalem because they were coming to fulfill their temple duties. And maybe they see this motionless guy on the side of the road and assume he's dead. And instantly, Numbers 19.11 pops in their head, if we touch this guy and he's dead, we can't fulfill our duties We can't work for God, so the smart thing, the wise thing, the practical thing for us to do is to avoid that body, that motionless body over there, because it might compromise our obedience to the Lord. You see, their primary crime here may have been that they did not view mercy as an indispensable part of a relationship with God. That might have been their big fault. And that's a problem. Because Scripture asserts, Jesus asserts, that mercy is one of the weightier matters of the law. In Matthew chapter 23 and verse 23, Jesus criticized the scribes and Pharisees and called them hypocrites because they scrupulously tithed to the point of counting herbs, but they neglected the weightier matters of the law, such as justice and mercy and faithfulness. He went on to say, these you ought to have done, justice, mercy, and faithfulness, without neglecting the others, the keeping of the commandments. Jesus said mercy is a weightier matter. That doesn't mean you disobey God when it comes to his other matters, but that mercy has some primacy. And Jesus will argue for the primacy of mercy in his teaching as well. Twice in Matthew's gospel, Jesus instructed his religious opponents to learn what the phrase, I desire mercy and not sacrifice means. The first time is in Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13, when he dined in Matthew's house, and the Pharisees were critical of the fact that he was fellowshipping with people who were known sinners. The other time he used that phrase was in Matthew chapter 12, when the Pharisees criticized him for allowing his disciples to pluck grain while walking through a field on the Sabbath day. See, Jesus' opponents thought a relationship with God was all about sacrifice all about ritual, all about rule-keeping. And while our love is expressed to the Lord through our obedience, as he himself says, it can't come at the expense of mercy. So Jesus told them that their theology lacked a crucial element and said, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And he wasn't the first to say it. God had declared this back in Hosea chapter 6 and verse 6. But I want to bring us back to the verse we read in our scripture reading. To Micah chapter 6 and verse 8. Where it is said, He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly. To love mercy. And to walk humbly with your God. 
We are required to love mercy. And that means we're going to have to have it from time to time. Let me close out with this story about Ronald Reagan. I do not hold him up as uh, as the spiritual example we should all follow. Just this is a a powerful story. Back in 1988, there was a, a tragedy The Navy cruiser USS Vincennes shot down an Iranian commercial airliner that it mistook for an F-14 fighter jet. And over 250 Iranians perished as a result of that accident. There was debate in America over whether or not the U.S. government should compensate the Iranian families who lost loved ones in that accident. A poll was even taken of U.S. citizens on the matter, and the poll indicated that a majority of Americans did not want to compensate them primarily because the Iranian hostage situation was still fresh on their mind. But President Reagan announced that he was going to approve such compensation, and he was asked by a reporter, don't you think that by doing that you're setting a bad precedent? And his response was, I don't ever find compassion to be a bad precedent. That's the mentality of the merciful. We don't ever find mercy to be a bad precedent. So let me ask you this morning, do you need mercy? I know that you do, but some of you may need it in the form of the cleansing power of Christ's blood, and that's only accessible through the waters of baptism. And maybe today your sins need to encounter the mercy of God through those waters so they can be washed away, and you can have hope of eternity with him in heaven. Let me ask you a more difficult question. Do you have mercy? Not do you need it, do you have it? Does it manifest in your life? Is it shown? Is it visible? Is it expressed in the lives of others? When you encounter people who need mercy from you, are you freely giving it? If not, then you might not be modeling your life after Christ. This morning, you're invited to find mercy if you need it. And you're challenged to have mercy if you don't. Whatever your need is this morning, we invite you to come while together we stand and sing.